0: Well, if you have your Bibles, you'd open up to John chapter 17. If you're unfamiliar with uh, myself, my name is Sam. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are the first three books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels, particularly called the Synoptic Gospels because they share the similar narrative of Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection. They generally tell <clears throat> excuse me, the same story, generally include... Uh, much of the same uh, chronology, uh, and then you get to the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is very unique. Uh, the Apostle John, if you read the very end of his uh, Gospel, he indicates the purpose of it, uh, which was a little bit different than the other purposes. It was to prove that Jesus was actually the Son of God, uh, God incarnate. And so he includes uh, no parables, uh, some unique Uh, stories about Jesus and unique events of which one of them is John 17 which won't be found in the other gospels. Now uh, we typically go through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse but this summer we've gone through chapters Romans chapter 8 we just went through for uh, several weeks and now we will spend about four weeks uh, in the gospel of John chapter 17 until we get into the book of Jude which is not that long but we'll expand it and go verse by verse through that. So, this week we start uh, a four part series on prayer, and I've titled it uh, Morning and Evening. And you may have heard that phrase before. Um, Charles Spurgeon wrote a daily devotional uh, called uh, Morning and Evening, Uh, but the phrase originates from the book of Genesis. Uh, if you read the first chapter in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you would see that God creates uh, in six days, rests on the seventh, and every day is marked by uh, this kind of organizing phrase of uh, there was morning, there was evening the first day, there was morning and evening the second day, and so on and so forth. And it's describing just basically morning and evening as a way to package a whole day. Everything happens in the day, the completeness of a day. And so we're talking about prayer, morning evening. Now, uh, that phrase was used more uh, in the Bible and in uh, history. Uh, If you read the scriptures into the Old Testament, you see that this phrase morning and evening or evening and morning uh, is also used to describe uh, the continual sacrifices that happened at the temple on behalf of Israel by the priesthood. And so they would make sacrifices in the morning, uh, and they would make sacrifices in the evening. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, Israel uh, didn't always have a temple. Uh, It was built, and then eventually, because of the breakdown of the monarchy, uh, they were conquered uh, through a series of events and eventually exiled uh, to Babylon. And in exile, away from their country, the actual promised land, uh, they dwelled, and the temple was actually destroyed. So they no longer could do the sacrifices to atone for sins whatnot, and so prayers became kind of equal in some sense to sacrifice, and they began to do morning and evening prayers. And you see that with the likes of guys like Daniel. So if you read in the book of Daniel, you'll see that he gets thrown in the lion's den. Well, one of the reasons he got thrown in the lion's den was because he was praying morning and noon and night as a practice, which is indicative of many of the Jews in exiles and obviously the reason for him getting in trouble. So later in church history, uh, after Jesus and the church kind of became what we understand as the Catholic Church, they took this idea of morning and evening and they structured uh, a liturgy around daily prayers. If you have any kind of Catholic history, you may be familiar with this. Uh, and other expressions of Christianity have that as well, where they have daily prayers. And it becomes kind of this ritualistic thing to pray this at this time and this at this time. Uh, and it's just a description of the kinds of prayer that became very formalized in some of our church history. Now, If you've been to many other churches, and if you're like the average American, you've probably been to several churches over the last many years because that seems to be the normal rhythm of people. That's not a criticism, it's a reality. Well, maybe it's a little criticism. But you may find I I don't go to many churches because I'm always preaching or often preaching. So I went on a sabbatical and I was able to attend, this is several years ago, a bunch of churches I never get to. So, like, okay, this will be an interesting experience. And what I found is maybe what you would find is that there's fewer than more churches that, this will sound really bad. I'm not trying to be critical, but uh, that open the Bible very often. That's one that I noticed. Uh, two was there was even less prayer. Um, and that's why it's been interesting. Uh, As we have tried to infuse more prayer into our service, including a very intentional five-ish prayer, um, some of the comments that we've gotten. Uh, And all I'm suggesting is that it's unusual for us to pray like that, to gather. It's hard for us to be still for five minutes of anything. uh, But to hear someone pray is stretched for us because it's unusual. It's uncommon. Um, although I've never heard anyone make comments about five minutes of announcements or five minutes of singing or five minutes of Bible reading or five minutes of anything else other than prayer. Isn't that interesting? So a series of morning and evening prayer might sound a little intimidating uh, because it's unusual. In today's world, uh, people are praying less. Uh, statistically, I'm not sure how they even figure this out, uh, certainly less churches pray, but Christians, 50% Uh, Or less, pray daily. And I'm not sure what your prayer life looks like. I have no idea. Uh, If anything I say strikes your heart this morning, I didn't say your name. I wasn't thinking of you. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. But I would speak for myself, and maybe I speak for you, that I'm not sure prayer, as Mark said, is many of our strongest muscles. If that's the thing that we would say that we're really strong in, faithful to, uh, frequently at. In fact, it seems in today's world the call to pray without ceasing, which is in the Bible, has been replaced by play without ceasing. And that time on the cell phone um, has replaced perhaps time in the prayer closet. If we just talk about time that we give to things. so. The truth is, our lives are really noisy. Our lives are really busy. If you have kids, but even if you don't, like, lives are just kind of busy crazy. They're very full of many good things, but I think a shrinking number of God things. In truth, I think for many of us, and I can, you know, I'll maybe just speak for myself, sometimes life just feels like survival. If you're spending enough time here, I'll often ask you the question, are you thriving or surviving right now? And not too many people respond with thriving. Most say, I'm just kind of surviving. We often feel like we're barely treading water. And because we feel like we're barely treading water just to get through life, we feel like if we stop ever moving, we will drown. So we convince ourselves, I can't stop moving. i got to keep going. If I don't, I won't stay afloat. And I think many of us, maybe I'm the only one, view many of the problems that we're treading water to avoid as pragmatic. Like my issues, I wouldn't have to tread water so feverishly if I had more time, if I had more money, if I had more whatever. Very pragmatic. And the last thing in the chaos of our lives, trying to tread water and not get sucked under, the last thing that we think about when things are chaotic and crazy busy is being still. And resting in the fact that God is God. Like being still sounds like, oh, I can't do that. I don't got time to be still. Practically speaking, if we just be honest for a second, in all of our flesh, prayer seems really unhelpful and unproductive. Prayer seems kind of like, ah, I know I probably should pray, but I could give my time to these other things and get some really meaningful things done. I don't think we say that out loud. But I think we secretly couldn't disagree with Martin Luther more. Couldn't disagree with Martin Luther more. You know what he said? I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer today. All right, when's the last time you said that? Oh my gosh, this day is packed. I better pray twice as much. That's just not our tendency. I think we go the other way. I am so busy, I'm probably going to have to pray a little bit less, if at all, this morning or this evening. Our refusal to stop, our refusal to be still, I think our addiction to busyness, if it can be called that, that fills us up physically, fills us up materially, but I would argue it might be killing us spiritually. I'm going to have a Several different quotes from a couple books that I've been reading or have read. Hopefully they're helpful and not too distracting. But there's a really small book called Crazy Busy. He said, busyness does not mean you are a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means you're busy just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. Did you know that's what busyness is doing to you? Putting your soul in danger? You see, when when we're in danger, we have no problem praying. When we're in danger, we're like, oh, I know I'm desperate for God's help, and so we pray. And while spiritually speaking, this is the normal way of things. Our souls are always in danger in a sense, assaulted in a sense but we don't function as if that's the truth until we're actually physically in danger. Like when we're physically in danger, we're on our knees, we're on our faces. But I'm not sure we're so sensitive to the spiritual danger that busyness actually creates. I've often wondered what it would take for you, for me, to pray more, to be more consistent in prayer. Tim Keller was asked that question. You know his answer? How can I pray more? How can I be more committed to prayer? He said, I only know one way. Suffering. Oh. So be careful praying that God will help you pray more. I have an app on my phone. It's a prayer app to record prayers because my mind tends to wander, so I like to write my prayers out so I can pray for the same thing consistently. So when you come up to me and say, would you pray for this? And I whip my phone out. I'm not looking on Facebook. I'm actually writing down what you're saying. One of my prayers was to learn to pray more. And you can edit these prayers over time. So the title of it says that I would pray more. And then the first line, you know what it says? Lord, you tricked me. Because my life got really stinky after that, which caused me to pray more. But Tim Keller started his book in an introduction uh, to his book. I think it's just called Prayer. And um, he struggled in prayer for many years, until 2001. Now, he's a pastor in New York, 2001. What do you think about? September 11th, right? Well, a series of events happened in a short amount of time. One was September 11th. One was his wife was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Like all in a short amount of time. Meanwhile, I think he was preaching on prayer. And so his wife, who, um, if many men would figure this out soon enough, our wives are much wiser and smarter than we are. She's brilliant. Tim Keller, is really smart, but like Kathy Keller, like, Like, super smart. So she's talking to him, and she's talking about prayer, and she's like, we're not going to be able to get through this unless we pray. And so she gave him an analogy, and I think I wrote it down. Yeah, I did. Here's what she said to help him learn to pray. He says, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. As we go through this short series on prayer, I hope we get to that point. That we don't see that, oh, I probably ought pray because I'm a Christian. I should pray because it's the right thing to do. It's like, no, 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 I need to pray. And we need to take a pill every morning and every evening because I need to stay alive. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And it's a prayer that is prayed in His humanity in many ways, where he is desperate for himself, but he is also praying for his friends. And what it reveals is not just what is most important to Jesus to pray in this hour of great desperation, because this is the hour and time period, the short period, the evening that he would be betrayed, the evening he would be arrested and the next day crucified. He knows what's coming, right? And so he, this is what's most important for him to pray on this evening. But I also think it gives us a picture of what is most important for us to pray, perhaps every morning and every evening. So if you look at John 17, we're going to go through four parts. I'm just going to go through the first part this morning, which is the first five verses. And then we'll go through three other sections over the last, next few weeks says, when Jesus had spoken these words, this is John 17, verse 1, and this is the words he just spoke was having the last supper with his disciples, telling them that, by the way, he's going to go away, the Holy Spirit's going to come, they're going to all abandon him, the world's going to pound on them, but don't worry, it'll be okay. And then he starts to say, he goes, when he's spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Which I think is interesting, because what do we typically do? We bow our heads and close our eyes. That's interesting. But he spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true Son, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. Now, let me get some context to this so we understand kind of Jesus in prayer a little bit. So Jesus was 33-ish years old when he died. And for all those years, which we have, you know, not everything recorded, but a lot recorded about his life, Uh, He was someone who prayed regularly. We see in Luke, when he is 12 years old, right? His family leaves, forget that they didn't have Jesus with them. They go back to find him. And where is he? He says he is in his father's house, which is in the temple, hanging out with all of the teachers of the law. He is in the house of his father, which the Old Testament calls a house of prayer. Many times a house of prayer. During his three years of ministry, quite frequently, he would leave the crowds. After doing miracles sometimes, after teaching sometimes, he'd just kind of wander off. He says he'd go off to a desolate place to pray. He'd get away from people to pray, into the wilderness to pray. None of those prayers are recorded. We don't know what he did. We only know that he did it. And he did it a lot because he did it enough that his disciples asked him, at least one particular disciple asked him, could you teach us to pray? And that's just based off of them watching him. Watching him do, not not even knowing what he's praying, but man, he keeps going off by himself and seems like he's either talking to himself or talking to the Lord or something. He's over there praying, he's praying, "Could could you teach us to pray like that? The prayers that we've seen these other rabbis doing are very different than that. It caused me to wonder what m- people might ask me to teach them based on what I give myself to regularly. That's a hard question. What do I give myself to so regularly that people go, hey, why do you do that? I'm not sure it would be prayer. I think, which well, she's not here, People might ask my wife that. My wife's praying all the time. Praying with the little kids. They'll lose a toy. Let's pray about it. Like, really? Let's just look for it, right? Godlier, perhaps, certainly more committed to prayer regularly in the small things and the big things. What would someone ask you to teach them based on what you give yourself to most of the time? or enough of the time, or a lot of the time. They asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And he taught them, and it's been historically identified as the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven, and, and, and instructs them on somewhat of a model to pray, a, a, an organ, a way to organize your prayer. Not to pray it rote, not to pray just those particular words, though I don't think anything's wrong with doing that. The model, actually, the instruction he gives, I think, actually is patterned here in John 17, but that's a whole other conversation. But this prayer is Jesus' own Lord's Prayer, the real Lord really praying, and it's actually called, historically, the High Priestly Prayer. You may have that little label in your Bible. You see, the Lord's Prayer, where he taught, and then this is the High Priestly Prayer, where he models his own prayer. And you go, well, that's kind of a weird name to call something, but not when you understand what Jesus is preparing to do. So if you don't have any familiar with uh, the Old Testament, what you should understand is that there is a priesthood and then there's a high priest, kind of the lead priest. And the high priest annually had to prepare himself to go into the presence of the Lord, into the temple, specifically into the very center of the temple, the holiest place, the holy of holies, and there he would atone for the sins of his people annually, the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, if you ever want some good nighttime reading, gives a... Series of instructions on how to prepare for this day, how the priest is supposed to prepare. and It's very elaborate. And so You have to kind of read it carefully. He's taking clothes off, putting clothes on, washings, blood, all kinds of stuff is happening. And as I said, one of the preparing kind of ways was the priest would remove kind of the normal priestly clothes and they would go through a series of washings until they put some kind of special clothes on for this particular day. And if you read all of John, and you go back maybe a couple chapters from John 17, you'll see when Jesus prepared the Last Supper, one of the first things he does in John 13 is what? He makes a note that he took off his garments. Which are always like, that's kind of weird. Not if you understand what's happening with the high priest preparing for the Day Atonement, which was marked by his actual cross. And so you see him taking off his garments. You see him washing, but not himself, his disciples and preparing to be the high priest that is going to go into the presence of the Lord and atone for the sins of His people within a day or so hours. And so, Jesus knows what's happening, right? He starts His prayer by saying, I I know... My hour has come. He said multiple times prior to this, my hour's not here yet, my hour's not here yet, my hour's not here yet. And it's not an actual hour, but it's a short period of time. He knows, he says, my hour's come. I know I'm going to die. So Jesus knows he's going to the cross and he's not singing zippity-doo-dah. His prayer in the garden indicates how stressful it was, how overwhelming it was, But in that moment, what does he do? He enters like a high priest into the presence of God in prayer. So let me just open my own heart, which means show you my own crud for a second. If you are anything like me, and I hope that you become less like this part of me, I would say that my first response is, when I see impending difficulty coming is not to pray. I eventually get there, but that's not my first response. That's Jesus' first response, but that's not mine. I find that often being present with God, just sitting still with God, praying to God is not my first desire when circumstances get busy or difficult. Me, I get to work. I got to fix things. I got to do what I can to stop things. Perhaps you're not like that. That tendency of mine reminded me of a very short story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus enters a village of some friends and they goes to a house, a woman named Martha. This might be familiar to you. And she had a sister named Mary. So you got Martha and Mary, right? And what is Mary doing in Martha's house, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching? Just being with Jesus. Oh, teach me more, tell me more, talk to me more. Listening to Jesus. Martha is getting a little bugged. Martha was distracted. With much serving. Not distracted with a bad thing, but with a good thing. But that good thing becomes a distraction to what is a better thing. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work and she's just sitting here hanging out with you? Tell her to help me. What does Jesus say? Mary, get to work. What are you doing? Just hanging out here. No? Martha, Martha. 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 I don't know if how she said it, but you're know, like, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. All this other stuff. There's only one thing necessary, and that's what Mary's chosen to be with Jesus, to sit with Jesus, okay, I probably need a t-shirt, I am Martha, (laughs) I want to be Mary, that would be creepy, right, go in the coffee shop, (laughs) I am Martha, I want to be Mary, what, especially in today's culture, you'd be like, what, but that's me, like, when things get difficult, Prayer is so unproductive. We get busy. And Jesus' own example, and I would argue his instruction, is don't do that. Don't do that. Prayer is so much less about doing than it is just being. Prayer is how we enter into the presence of God so that when we actually do whatever we do, we do it with God, by God, and for God, and not with ourselves, by ourselves, for ourselves. Because that's the tendency, right? Run around, get all busy, yeah! Jesus, like, all right, that's cool, thanks for doing that, didn't ask you to. You ready to listen to me now? Because you got a lot done, but that really wasn't what I asked you to get. Prayer, I've heard it said, doesn't offer us a busy, less busy life, but a less busy heart within the busyness of life. And that's what I need. This is why I think the apostle asks us or reminds us, like, set your minds on things above. Set your mind on things, like, how do you do that? How do you set your mind on things above? How do you direct your mind to things above? I can't think of any other way other than beginning at least with prayer, actually entering into heaven in the presence of God. Because the truth is, if we don't intentionally set our minds above through prayer, our minds are going to be set below for us by life. So we have to do it. And so that's what Jesus does. He's setting his mind, but he's setting his disciples' minds on things above because he just told them some really horrible things are going to happen below. So he directs their minds up. We all need that. Because, truth be told, there's a lot of horrible things happening below in our lives. Difficult things, overwhelming things. He's just told his disciples that I'm leaving and they're like, what do you mean, like, well, I've told you I'm going to be killed like 17 times, but you haven't believed me, but I'm really leaving now. And they're like, really? And they're sad. And then he gets worse. He's like, yeah, by the way, you're going to all abandon me, and I'm going to be all alone. Which they're like, really? It's confusing. We're going to, like, deny you? And then he says, yeah, and then the world's going to, like, hate you but don't worry, they hated me first. And I've overcome the world. But he still says, like, you're going to have tribulation. And so they're like sad and confused and a little worried. And what does he do? He just starts to talk with God. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry. Guys, get, gather around. Let's, let's, let's pray about this. He just goes. And it's, you, you understand the context of the prayer, but then you understand just the kind of the character, like, It's a conversation with a real person. It's so informal. It's strange. He's like, okay, hold on. Father, just goes. You see, once our prayer life becomes impersonal, it's not too long before the rest of our spiritual life becomes rote and routine as well. And something like this becomes just weird. Where Paul says, pray without ceasing. You're like, really? Go through the ritual? Okay, let me bow my head, Lord Jesus, I come before you, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wait, this just seems weird. It seems mechanical. It seems like, yeah, not even close to that. Pray without ceasing only seems possible when you start viewing prayer less as a transaction and more as communion with God. There's a very huge difference. Like, imagine a relationship that's all transactional. I do this, you do this, right? This is how it works, God. I pray, you answer, and the world goes round and round the way it should. How does that work in a friendship? How does that work in a marriage? Right? I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to give you information. You do what I think you should do, and everything will be fine. That's not conversation that's not relationship with a person that's a transaction and we don't have to go much further to understand like hey how am i supposed to like what's the attitude i'm supposed to be coming you don't have to go much beyond the first word jesus prays because like i said he doesn't pray lord he doesn't pray creator he doesn't pray a king of all he says father he says it six times in this prayer father 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 The overall character of his prayer is very relational, very intimate. There's no temple, there's no religious rote, there's no anything but relationship. And I think we have a tendency in this, probably the flesh in us, as we go to the Lord in prayer, right? We say things like, dear God, which sounds like you're writing a letter. It's supposed to be dear, like it's like a, a term of endearment, like dearest Lord, but... We just kind of say it. It's not bad, but like think about like what am I saying? Jesus never said, dear God, dear God, here are the things going on in my life, right? It's Father, Father. But it's interesting. I think we have a natural fleshly tendency to view God as like kind of an impersonal spiritual vending machine. And maybe you've never thought of it this way, but this is how I guess I've evaluated some of my own prayer life. When I'm hungry, just to continue the analogy, when I'm hungry, oh, I need a snack, or I'm starving, where's my vending machine? And if I just put the right coins in, and I hit the right buttons, I will get the right treat. And if I don't get the treat I wanted because I put the right coins in and I thought I pressed the right buttons but I get a Butterfinger instead of Snickers, I'm going to kick this machine. Huh? God, I prayed. I served. I gave. I, you gave me a Butterfinger and I asked for this. That's not relationship. That's transaction. That's impersonal. I think we face life way too pragmatically and not prayerfully enough. And even when we pray, we approach Him pragmatically and not personally. But Jesus here is, is, is trying to say, like, just be close. Commune with the Lord. Commune with each other, He will say. And I think part of the reason we do this is because we actually want to control God. But in a great book... Um, written by Paul Miller called The Praying Life. He says, what do I lose when I have praying life? We don't like to lose, right? What am I giving up when I pray? Well, you're giving up control. Just look at the Lord's Prayer. My Father who art in heaven, all right. How be thy name. Fantastic, you're so holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Wait a second. There's only one will that can be done. Yours or God's? You give up control, you give up independence. What do I gain? Friendship with God, a quiet heart, the living work of God in the hearts of those who love, the ability to roll back the tide of evil. Essentially, I lose my kingdom and I get his. I move from being an independent player to a dependent lover. I move from being an orphan to a child of God. Not asking God what you can do for me, but actually just listening and see what God wants to do through you. So that's the character we're talking about. Like, I would hate for us to think of morning needing me in prayer and get to this ritualistic liturgical thing. Now, for some, structure helps. I have structured prayer because it helps because my mind wanders. I'm a little weird like that. But it's intended to bring us into the presence of God in communion, in relationship, in intimacy. But let's look at what he actually prays, right? Because this is like, what does he actually pray? We'll go through these relatively quickly, because this is kind of helping us go like, okay, as we pray, like what do we actually pray? How do we begin to pray? This is just the beginning of his prayer. He's going to say a heck of a lot, but how do we begin? How do we start our prayer? He says something quite interesting. Father, the hours come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You ever heard the word glory or glorify in a church context? I bet you have quite a bit. I wonder if you knew what it meant, because we use it all the time. You'll see each of these sections kind of has a word that's repeated frequently. This particular section, it's glory, glorify, glory, glorify with the glory had before, glory, 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 like what the snarf is glory, and what is snarf? That's my word. So, you got glory, the noun, and you got glorify, the verb. What do they mean? Well, the term glory in Greek is this idea of weight and worth and value. If something has glory, it's got heaviness to it in terms of its intrinsic goodness and greatness. And so, to glorify means to ascribe and praise that value, that heaviness, that weightiness, that greatness of someone or something. John Piper connects holiness with glory. And you go, oh, come on. I was working on one word. What's holiness? So holiness, God is holy. We sing songs like that. We go, what does that even mean? Holiness is how we describe God's otherness, if you will. His complete difference between himself and his creation. He is in a class by himself in terms of perfection and greatness. His holiness is what separates him from creation. There is nothing to compare to him at all. Holiness is what he is, as God is and nobody else is. It's the quality of perfection that cannot be improved upon. It can't be imitated. It can't be compared with. It's not external to him. It is internal to God, his very nature and character. He signifies he is infinitely worthy of infinite value. And you go, what does that have to do with glory? Well, it's noteworthy, as the passage was read this morning in Isaiah, which is a great passage. Isaiah chapter 6, it describes Isaiah going into the presence of God. And he goes in, and you should just watch his response. And it, in many ways, should guide our response to God. But as he goes into his presence, he sees all kinds of, you know, angels flying around with all these kinds of wings, covering and flying, and do all kinds of things. And he hears something. What he hears is them saying, "Holy, holy, holy!" Right. So if we know holiness is this awesomeness, incomparableness, infinite greatness, perfection perfect, perfect, perfect is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now you'd expect them to say the whole earth is full of His holiness. Right? But they're connecting the two. And so when we think about glory, we think of God's holiness on display, His perfections on display, His awesomeness on display. So, this is not like a trick question. Where is God's Holiness, awesomeness, perfection, most on display in all of creation, past, present, and future. There. the Cross. Where is God most glorified? The cross. The cross is a display of God's perfect wrath and his perfect mercy. Of his perfect justice and his perfect love. All at the same time, that's the paradox of it because it is the Son of God on that cross. So we go, what glorifies God the most? What magnifies His holiness and His perfection the most? The cross, which is why Jesus would say, glorify your Son. And what He has in view is the cross. Yes, there's future glory to come when He ascends to heaven, when He returns and makes all things right, but all of it includes the cross and the resurrection. And asking the Father to glorify the Son, He is looking forward to the place where God's love and goodness, His wrath and justice, His mercy and grace is all displayed perfectly. To glorify the cross is to glorify God. But it's interesting how Jesus prays for it, right? Because we're talking about how do we pray. Okay, Jesus is praying that. He prays it in third person. Right? He doesn't say glorify me, though he does say that later. He says glorify your son. Glorify your son. This is the kind of language I think that helps us understand how we would ever begin our prayers. This is how our prayers should begin. Whether that's actually in word or just in disposition, our prayers have to center on the cross because We only enter into the presence of God through the cross. That's where it all starts. Is that how you start your prayer? Do you talk about the cross? Do we pray about the glorification of the Son? There's a reason why the cross is a symbol of our faith. Because if prayer is how we enter into the presence of God, our prayers have to begin with savoring the reason or the means through which we can enter it all. Why? That keeps us humble. That begins our prayers with gratitude. But you know what it also does? It fills us with joy. Who doesn't want joy in the front end? Let me prove it to you. The symbol of our faith is not the empty tomb, though that is essential to our faith, foundational to our faith. What's the symbol of our faith? Not Jesus on the cross, an empty cross. Why does that matter? Because it's finished. My sins are forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm a child of God, irrevocably. I'm in Christ. We start our prayers by, we're in Christ. We're entering through Christ. I'm in the presence because of Christ. That's where prayer should start. That's where Jesus' prayer starts. Glorify the Son. So in our prayers, glorify the Son. Pray through the Son. Pray in the Son. And that's not just labeling Jesus on the end of your prayer in the name of Jesus, which is great. Start by praying through Christ. Remembering that you are coming into the presence of the Father as a child who delights in hearing you pray, and he don't care what you say. Do you ever have your child come to you and go, what? You kind of babble. Can't you talk in more articulate ways? Your child just comes and says, Dad, and you hug him. Your child cries and you embrace him. Did you realize that's how you're approaching the Father? Praying the cross helps you to remember that. That's not all he prays though, right? He prays something kind of strange because when you glorify the Son, people are saved. When you talk about the cross, people are saved. And he says that this is where eternal life comes from. When you glorify the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God and the cross, people are saved. And you go, saved from hell? Not necessarily, though they are. He prays something strange. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you. What? That seems odd. He doesn't want us to misunderstand exactly what salvation is. We often appreciate what we have been saved from in salvation, sin and death and hell, but do we appreciate who we've been saved to? Not what we've been saved to. Oh, I've been saved to heaven. No, not what. Who we've been saved to. You see, when we go to God, you know what we normally want from Him? Knowledge. Tell me the direction. Tell me the answer. Tell me how this is going to be fixed. Tell me whatever. As opposed to actually praying to just get Him. This is not knowledge about God, right? We say, oh, that, that they might have knowledge about God. It's interesting if you read Matthew 7, one of the scariest passages in Scripture where people go before who seem to know a lot about God, seem to have done a lot for God, and he's like, mm, away from you. I never knew you. There's a lot of people in here who know a lot about the Bible. You've been a Christian for a long time. That doesn't mean you know God. Jesus warned the Pharisees who like memorized the Bible, right? These were like the top first class Iwana kids. They knew everything. And it says, this is Jesus saying to them like, you guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now he's not like putting down the Bible, but how they've used the Bible. He goes, and it's the very things that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that may have life. But we know everything about the Messiah. We know everything about God. But you don't know me. Eternal life has much more to do with relationship than it does simply facts about God. You see, knowledge reforms and it's good. Knowledge is not a bad thing. But knowing actually transforms. Knowledge reforms us as we grow. But knowing transforms us from the inside out. Prayer is intended to help us know God. And it's, as I've said before, like the conversation between two good friends or between spouses or any kind of deep relationship, right? That relationship isn't just about the exchange of information. Like that can't be everything it's about. I'm going to give you information. You can, like, if it's just like, imagine a marriage or a relationship just through texting. I guess you got your emoticons so you can put some feelings in there, but if that's all there is, that's just exchange of information, why do, we have, why do we communicate with one another in relationship? Why do we sit down if we sit down? I counsel lots of marriages, right? Can you guess what 90% of them say their problem is when we sit down? Communication. Guess what it's not? It's not exchanging information. It's not that they're not talking to each other, but they're not actually finding hearts being unified. They're not finding agreement. They're not actually hearing each other's hearts. They're not being knit together in love. So when we talk about praying to God, it's interesting what it doesn't say Prayer is not designed for God to know you. I want you to think about that for a second. Like, when you come to God, it's not like you're going to go, man, I've got these desires and these feelings. He's going to go, oh, really? I didn't know you felt that way. That's a surprise. You realize God never says that. That's why we read that psalm in the very beginning, the call to worship. Yeah, all this stuff does kind of bend together. Where he knows you even before you know yourself. He knows what you're thinking before you think it, what you're feeling before you feel it. So it doesn't mean you don't come and and share your feelings and share your desires. What I'm saying is that God is not like, finally, you've opened up to me. Prayer is not primarily for God to know me. Guess what it is? Primarily is designed for me to know Him and for my desires to be shaped by His will, not for me just to communicate my desires. Knowing God, or as Brother Lawrence says it in a fantastic book, very small, you should read it, let us occupy ourselves entirely knowing God. The more we know Him, the more we desire to know Him. And as love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love Him. We'll learn to love Him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. Knowing God, spending time with God, and then watching as you learn what His will is for you, what His desires for you, as a father who always wants your best you become to see that your desires are not like, I'm going to move the hand of God. No, the, the point of prayer is not to move the hand of God, right? If you Google like prayer, you'll probably get a lot of got question things that say, does prayer really move the hand of God? Prayer certainly does, by God's will, move his hand at times. But you know it's primarily to change your heart. For him to actually shape you and to direct you the way he wants you to go that's actually best last thing he prays about weird thing glorious thing verse five deep theology and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory i had with you before the world existed Did you know jesus said that most of the world doesn't most of the world says i like jesus he's a great teacher What a fantastic example. He was a great, respectful guy, good martyr, whatever. Did you know he taught that he existed before the world was created? Oh, actually three or four times in John he teaches this. Powerful theology here about Jesus Christ being fully God. About Jesus Christ being the Son of God who took on human flesh about Jesus Christ being the one that Philippians 2 says did not count equality something to be grasped, but actually emptied himself of glory, took on the form of a servant, took on human flesh and died on the cross in the likeness of men. Having accomplished his mission now, right? He's looking forward though. He is looking forward to and longing for where he can return to the fullness of glory. Don't think that he is not fully God at this point. Colossians 2.9 tells us that he is fully God in bodily form, but he's obviously restrained. His glory isn't fully seen. He's like, Oh, I can't wait. I want to fully be in glory and all the beauty and power I had with God. And you go, Okay, he's in a lower state. There's exaltation that is yet to come. What does that have to do with my prayer? I'm not going to pray that. I didn't exist before the world existed. What do I pray? Well, I think that's something we can pray in this sense, because eternity, as Ecclesiastes taught us, is in our heart, and the emptiness of this world daily reminds us that, guess what? Things are broken, and we seem to be lower or less than God designed us to be. And that can give us great hope if we pray for what? His return and that final restoration. Just as Christ is looking forward to the restoration of his glory, we can look forward to being glorified with him, for our bodies to be fully redeemed with him, for everything to be made all new and all things restored as we dwell with him. This is setting our minds and reminding ourselves that, guess what? We are all redeemed works in progress. That God is doing something, committed to completing the work he began. And so if you don't set your mind on heavenly things, guess what? You're going to be captivated or conquered by the things below. And so we pray for restoration. We pray for his return. Is that included in your prayer? Lord Jesus, come now. Lord Jesus, restore all things. My body is broken. My relationships are broken. I can't wait for your return. That's a prayer of hope. If your prayer's all transactional, just asking for like this and that, to get through this and have that, like, it's just so incomplete. Jesus prayed because he wanted us to understand one basic thing, can't do life on our own. If you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, you'll always be a little too busy, But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. Now, I get convicted in reading that, and I've already read that like 20 times this week, and I haven't said anyone's name, but if you feel stirring in your heart, what the stirring is is that maybe you're living life a little too independently of God. And I would argue that the busyness of your life is endangering your soul. I'll close with this. I don't pray because God loves me more if I do. But I would argue if you start praying more, you might love God more than you do now. I pray and hope to pray every morning and evening because I need to remember the cross every morning and evening. I need to remember the cross as I go about my day and go man temptations that are come and the only way I have to overcome them is the cross but I also need to pray in the evening you know why? because if I fell flat on my face I need to remember the cross that Jesus said it's okay I paid for that too I pray every morning and evening because I need to cultivate my relationship with the one true God every morning and every evening reminded that God is more interested in being with me than in my doing for him because let's be honest You start your day, I'm going to do all this stuff. And then you get to the end of the day like, I didn't do any of that stuff. (laughs) Well, prayer fixes that. Reminds you of what's most important and what God actually cares about. And finally, we pray every morning and evening because I need to remind myself every morning and evening as I see things breaking before my eyes that God is going to restore all things. That this is not the end of the story. And that God, and he reminds me of this through prayer, is intending to bring me back into the garden to be in fellowship with him. And one day there will be no need for faith. There will be no need for hope. There will be no need for prayer. Because we'll be with God face to face. And all we'll have is his love. And that will be a glorious day. Let's pray.